Welcome back from lunch. In, in this segment, I want to continue to look at the instructions uh, given in the text, in this case the second and third set of instructions, and then also explore some of the ways that we apply the third foundation teachings to our practice in general and to our everyday lives and bring in some ways that we might expand the instructions to bring in different kinds of thoughts and emotions. And so, uh, just a few comments before beginning. Uh, A very interesting discussion. Your your name again was? Melissa. Melissa uh, asked a very interesting question about uh, about the nature of greed, or the uh, lobha is the... uh, word in the text, and, no, I'm sorry, raga is uh, the word in the text. And the, um, the question really was, is greed about being excessive? Because often in our usual way of talking about greed, we make, as it were, a moral assessment about trying to get excessive goods. We talk about people being greedy uh, on Wall Street or whatever, as if they are trying to get more than they really need. And there's, there's a kind of moral assessment. And I think that can come into greed, but the most direct way that we talk about greed is as a lived experience or an attitude in relationship to our experience. So. You know, we, so the example we were looking at, for example, was um, uh, I, can, I can have a very greedy relationship to eating my breakfast. My breakfast can be a normal amount, not excessive. And yet I can have this really impulsive or compulsive way that I relate to breakfast. I can grab hold of it. I can eat really quickly. I can just be totally... Uh, caught up in it in that way, as if I have to have it right now and all those qualities. And that's interesting. So it's, it's, I think, uh, greed probably would bring in both those dimensions, both the sense of excessiveness or going beyond what I truly need. But the main definition here is more from the inside, what it feels like uh, from the inside. I imagine that people could actually be very greedy about accumulating, in the sense of a moral assessment, about accumulating vast amounts of money and actually be rather cool about it. It's interesting, right? Um, and so I think we probably want to think about both, both of those aspects. Um, anyone have any interesting insights during lunch that you'd like to share about what we're looking at? Uh, Please, if we could have someone uh, bring the microphone out. Hello. <laughs> I don't know if this is an insight, but it was very similar to your experience about the ice cream. Yeah. I uh, entered into my lunch and was eating and was... What was that word you used? Stuffing it in your... um, Shovel. Yes, (laughs) shoveling. And then I really paused 
over the potato salad. Mm -hmm. And I realized, just like you did, about the ice cream, that it was fatty. Mm -hmm. And actually, I love potato salad generally. So Mm -hmm. it was interesting to really stop and see what the actual experience was. Really, to see what the actual experience is. That's the core of mindfulness, right? That's the core, uh, again, this uh, American-born teacher, Achan Samedo, says, look at the experience and you can say, it's like this. So in a fairly uh, neutral way, in a sense, okay, I'm looked, I've looked at greed. Greed is like this. Despair is like this. Uh, you know, happiness is like this. Uh, it's, this is my experience. It's like this. It's that spirit that we really have in the mindfulness. So we're not so much um, condemning it or saying, judging ourselves for having this or that experience, but we're just looking. And then if judgment arises, we note that as well. You know. Any other observations from um, food is and eating is a fantastic place for mindfulness. <laughs> and it's very interesting, you know, during retreats, and, and it's not easy, right? Uh, but it's uh, something really to explore. You can explore uh, Vedana, the second foundation, endlessly. Pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant. Mind says very pleasant. I'm full, but I would like a second helping. Mm. So, and, and what does that feel like? Yeah. Okay, so a few, a few, other, uh, few other thoughts, and then I'll go on to the second and third, third set of instructions. Again, I'll come back in a little while to the question, which is especially a question of daily life, of how do we connect mindfulness with our decision about what is a wise response, which sometimes, often, is something that's not just about being mindful. How do we make that connection? We'll come back to that. Again, the training here is not on that kind of response or intervention in general, but it's about how can I be mindful of what's happening, and the key reason for that is to have space, particularly around where we're reactive, where there is greed, hatred, delusion, and to notice those, to be with those, and the mindfulness helps them from proliferating or just leading us on to other mind states and other behaviors. That's totally the reason. So we have, again, the ability to respond rather than to react. We can talk about that as a certain quality of freedom. I am not dominated by my reactions, but I can, in, when I have mindfulness, I can have enough space around them so that I can then ask myself, should I do that? My mind is saying, do that, do that, do that. Should I do that? Is that wise? <laughs> and mindfulness makes possible that question. And so, again, it's a very simple capacity, but very, very powerful. You know, it's... Uh, I have uh, several of my students are teachers in the Mindful Schools program, which is in the East Bay and uh, San Francisco. I think maybe developing in Marin as well. I'm not, I'm not sure. And there have been maybe 15,000 elementary school kids who've gone through mindfulness training. 
at the elementary school level. And, um, and there are the insights that are just exactly what we're looking at you hear from six-year-olds or eight-year-olds. Like, I noticed when I got angry that I wanted to hit Jim. <laughs> but because I was mindful, I didn't. <laughs> you know, that's it, right? That's why we do it. And, you, and to hear these stories of small kids who, who get it, who can, say, who can see their patterns and not go along in the usual way. I mean, amazing, right? I hope the training continues, <laughs> right? Because it's quite, it's quite amazing. So just a few other things. Um, this is a nice cartoon, which is about the second foundation and about the fact that what we're looking for is just the capacity to be with experience no matter what's happening, even if it's difficult. This is, shows a meditator, and the, she's saying to herself, today I will live in the moment. And then her second thought is, unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. <laughs> so that's, that's the second foundation. <laughs> We're studying another second foundation story. It shows a picture of a candy bar um, called Fleeting Joy. <laughs> and the, the small print on the candy bar wrapping says, Fleeting Joy, followed by guilt, misery, and self-loathing. <laughs> so, and then the, the, other, the other sense, uh, that I referred to earlier, that, the, uh, that we can, in, in a sense, be present to greed, hatred, delusion, with, in a sense, without taking them personally and without judging ourselves, which is really, really important for all of this. I think you, you know that in mindfulness, part of mindfulness practice uh, reveals less than flattering aspects of ourselves. Have you noticed? <laughs> Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we, we practice and we really learn, I think, over time to develop this capacity to be with the shadow parts of ourselves or the hard parts of ourselves or the parts we don't like and increasingly open to them and just be present and saying, it's like this. You know, harsh self-judgment, it's like this. Right? And just watch it and we're with it. We'll come back more to working with challenging thoughts in, in a little while. But that, the key for this is that the difficult aspects of ourselves in these teachings and in what really what we find when we look deeply is that these aspects of ourselves are not permanent and they're not our innate nature, the difficult parts. Rather, we could say that there are visitors. And there's a, there's a, a text from, there's a famous text about this that I'll just read, which is about the beautiful and luminous quality of our citta, of our mind and heart, uh, and that the, the uh, so-called 
uh, kalesas or these three roots, greed, hatred, and delusion, are visitors. Here, this is a, a short text. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining. But they are colored by the attachments that visit them. This those who do not practice do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining, free of the attachments that visit it. Use that language, that visit it. This those who practice really understand. So for them, there is cultivation of mind and heart and that opening to that luminous quality. So first set of instructions, giving guidance to be mindful of greed, hatred, delusion, and their presence or their absence, which means also in terms of the absence to be able to know when there is generosity, contentment, love, compassion, clear seeing present. And again, uh, I think that's important to develop, to really, uh, to be able to tune into that. Again, we tend to want to have our mindfulness take care of the problematic states. But as we were mentioning earlier, there's a value in having some of our practice say, let me have my radar up for the degree to which there's just ease and contentment, just sitting in a simple way. And that can both uh, let us know that it's there and can also sometimes expand that sense of things. Furthermore, it really lets us be able to notice it more readily. And we'll come to this with the last instructions about freedom. We can do that as well and really notice our sense of being free more readily and not have our mindfulness quite as preoccupied with uh, difficult states or problematic states or what's, what's a problem. So the second set of instructions which we looked at in the guided practice are about being attentive of either contracted or distracted mind. That's what it's translated as. And again, contracted mind is to be aware when there is sleepiness. And distracted mind would be more restlessness or the thoughts going all over the place. And that's very valuable. These are both very valuable. That it's something that we often don't really see in our practice is that when we're not so mindful, we can be mindful of that. It's almost like sometimes we say, I'm not very mindful. So I guess I shouldn't try to be mindful, right? I think we probably, a lot of us experience this when our mind's distracted, right? You sit down, your mind's really distracted, and you're distracted for 15 minutes and say, this meditation's going nowhere, I guess I should get up. Has anyone ever had that experience? <laughs> okay. Maybe about an eighth of the group. <laughs> okay. um, so, um, so it actually can be very helpful just to notice and say to oneself, my mind is distracted, when it's distracted. And again, part of what that does is it lets me ask, what's the appropriate response if I'm distracted? And I might, if I was just focusing on mindfulness, I might try to say, okay, what does it feel like to be distracted? And see if I, we can actually, interestingly, track when we're distracted. We can track when we're sleepy. 
those of you who've been on retreats where you may have a fair amount of sleepiness come up over time, know that you can actually be mindful of sleepiness and just sit there for an hour being mindful of sleepiness. Maybe not as mindful as you would be if you were more awake, but you can be mindful. And what's very interesting is, and I'm sure many of us have experienced this, sometimes, of course, sleepiness is there because you really need rest. And a lot of times it's there because there's energy imbalances in the body or there are other reasons for sleepiness. And you can actually sometimes notice yourself being really sleepy and you stay being mindful and you notice the sleepiness lifting like a cloud going away. How many have experienced something like that? Isn't that interesting? So you can really be mindful of uh, that contracted mind or the sleepy mind and similarly be mindful of distracted mind. The other reason it's helpful, of course, is that it can lead to a response or an intervention. Not strictly the mindfulness we're talking about here, but if I'm I notice that I'm uh, really, really sleepy and, you know, I have a sense that it's, you know, imbalance of energy, well, maybe I do something about that. Maybe I say, okay, I'm going to come back to the sitting, but maybe I'll do yoga for five or ten minutes or do qigong or something that balances out the energy. Or maybe I'll stand up if I'm really sleepy and so forth. So we can do that. The third uh, set of instructions, which we have, which we have in our text, Uh, are the instructions that have to do with different kinds of concentrated states. Um, We have the, and this is probably, uh, some of this will be accessible in daily life and some of it not as accessible. So we have the mindfulness of the great mind in in the translation or the narrow mind. And this seems to refer to the sense of the scope and of the relative expansiveness of the mind. So if we would be doing a practice that would be, for example, uh, using metta practice or, or relating just to one object, we would have a narrow focus. And if we were open in a, some way to um, a larger expanse of experience, that might be great. And, uh, surpassable and unsurpassable uh, relates to levels of concentration and uh, surpassable simply means that we can be more concentrated and unsurpassable means that we're at the highest level of concentration. And so again, this is more probably for uh, retreat practice or for intensive meditation practice. But the, it, it's, it's uh, more applicable. The third uh, guidance is more applicable. That's to know whether our mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. And this could be either with the breath or with um, changing objects as, we, as we're noticing thoughts, emotions, body sensations, and so forth, the breath. And here the instruction is, and again, the invitation for our session is to try this out in your meditation, to have Uh, the guidance to say, let me just look for this sitting. Let me notice when I'm concentrated and when I'm not concentrated. And again, the um, second instruction is interesting because, again, it's looking at, it's being able to be mindful when we're distracted, not fully aware, and we can actually still uh, track what's going on. 
Another way of saying this in a way that indicates maybe why it's more meaningful is that we can be mindful no matter what's happening. Right? And that's pretty big, right? You don't have to wait for quiet, stable, calm mind to be mindful. Because mindfulness just means knowing what's happening. And this is really crucial because I think we often think, oh, my mind is all over the place. I guess I can't be mindful today. Right? And so we can actually, it takes some effort and it maybe takes some practice, but again, it's valuable in itself as we're being mindful and also uh, in terms of uh, knowing what to do if we want to have a response to the situation. Okay? I'm not so concentrated, so I might do certain things that help with concentration. So I might, for example, count my breaths or I might give a special focus to really being with the breath a little more effort or I might, uh, um, uh, again, do that which brings more energy into the system and so forth. And if it's happening a lot, I might have some other kinds of interventions. And then the last uh, guidance is about knowing when there's a liberated mind or an unliberated mind. And we could think of this in probably in two ways. One is more, I think it's intended by the text, is to know when there's some, somehow something like full freedom, full liberation. But much more relevant for us is to know when there are temporary moments in which we're free. To really be able to notice, when I'm, here am I, I'm just sitting here, and I'm not really bound by anything. Or at least I'm not conscious of being bound by anything. I'm not under the control of this or that thought. And there's a way in which I can be, and I can be really open to what's happening. And we can call this a kind of temporary inner freedom. And the invitation is to tune into that. And again, very much like when we tune into joy or contentment, it's, very, it's not usually what we do with our practice. So this instruction is interesting. It's to watch out for the moments when there's inner freedom, when you're not being taken by greed, hatred, or delusion, and when we have a sense, or it could be another time we might feel that freedom, is when we notice an old reactive pattern happening and there's mindfulness about it and we don't go the way we often do. Right? We have experiences like that. The invitation here is to tune in and know that as a moment of freedom and see what it feels like. And this is actually a powerful practice because what can happen when we do that is we notice that we are freer than we think we are. That there's more freedom actually present in our lives as we practice more, as we explore more. And again, we we so often uh, define ourselves by our problems, don't we? In this culture, (laughs) maybe in many cultures. (laughs) But I think we we often focus on the problems And we don't always see, basically, one way to say it, we don't see how beautiful we are. We don't see how much joy there is. We don't see how much contentment there is. And we tend to be, it's a very judgmental culture, right? We tend to judge ourselves a lot. I know this quite well because I've been, some of you know I teach on this theme a lot, on transforming the judgmental mind. And I've been doing 
monthly groups on judgments for 10 years. And all the judgmental people of the Bay Area come to my house. (laughs) 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 So we have have a little deposit place for the judgments in the the corner. Um, But but, uh, the the point's an important one, that we often, our self-image often, is around certain negative qualities or something that our mind just grabs hold of. I'm not enough this or that. Can anyone relate to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, just want to check. <laughs> and part of what some of these practices do where we tune into contentment or joy or freedom is we start to get a different sense of our being. You know, and we, again, I think a lot of this is culturally conditioned. We're culturally conditioned to focus on problems or to... I think probably more than culture, it's also maybe biology to a certain extent. We've got to make sure we get enough food, escape the saber-toothed tiger, mm-hmm. and so forth, right? There's something in you know, the reptilian brain, right? <laughs> Survival. <laughs> got to survive. But that this last practice where we tune into freedom, maybe even try it right now. Is there a way that you can feel yourself as uh, open, your, your awareness open, and free, just like, can you feel that? You know, maybe thoughts come or other thoughts come after five or 10 seconds, but there are ways in which we can, can notice that freedom. And it can be actually a powerful practice to keep on noticing that. It can really, it can really shift things at times. So I want to I want to move now to looking for for a little bit at the at some of the ways that we would apply these practices more broadly in our experience. And I'll just talk for a little while, and then we can we can talk together some. The text itself gives us guidance to look at certain states of mind and heart. But as I've been suggesting, most broadly, the teaching is about mindfulness of whatever states of mind and heart occur. And for a lot of us, the main practical benefit of these teachings and practices is to be more mindful of the usual visitors in our experience, you know, to, to, to whatever is occurring. And one of the most valuable applications of this is when we're having difficult experiences. You know, when we're having um, experiences of old patterns, when we're having experiences of fear, anxiety, self-judgment, judgment of others, anger, depression, despair, dot, dot, dot. Right? And How do we use mindfulness with those difficult states? Again, we don't have explicit guidance about how to work with fear in the text, but we can really move on from that, move on from the text and talk about it in certain ways. And again, I think it's helpful to think about those three main types of mindfulness. First, noticing that it's there. Secondly, 
exploring, investigating the experience. And thirdly, starting to see some of the patterns connected with that state, with that state arising. So a very fundamental practice would simply be when we're having a difficult state is just to ask what's happening. When I was in my teens, I had a friend, this was kind of during some of the hippie days, and he used to go around just saying all the time to everyone, what's happening? <laughs> this is the main form of discourse. You know. But from the point of view of mindfulness, it's something good to ask. <laughs> I've often wondered what happened to him. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know whether you know it was that was a kind of an induced state from too much of something. <laughs> but that's what he said for about a year or two, just what's happening. It's the main, main way of meeting the world. Um, so, uh, but, but simply to ask what's happening is very valuable. You know, you're at, a, you're at a meeting, you're feeling uncomfortable about something, your thoughts are going rapidly, just ask what's happening. Very simple practice. That's, really what we do with mindfulness. Some of you know there's a very wonderful teaching, which I think uh, many of us teach about at Spirit Rock, which is called the teaching of rain. Which, uh, how many of you know the teaching of rain? Um, it's, rain is an acronym. It stands for recognition, acceptance, investigation or inquiry, and non-identification. I believe it was developed by Michelle McDonald Smith, who is based in Hawaii and teaches uh, sometimes out here, mostly on the East Coast in, in Hawaii. And it's a very uh, wonderful way to bring mindfulness into any situation, but particularly challenging states. And so we first recognize that's the same thing as the noting that I've been talking about. We know that it's happening. We recognize, we say to ourselves, this is happening, okay? I'm, I'm angry, you know? and we notice that. And the second piece is acceptance, and that means acceptance that it's present. It's not a kind of moral acceptance where this should be this way and it should be this way forever. It's not that. It's acceptance in the sense of this is happening. I'm not trying to deny it or get rid of it at the moment. I'm just trying to admit that it's here and that it's present for me. So recognition, acceptance. The third is investigation or inquiry. Very similar to what I was talking about as the exploring, the, the looking. And I think that inquiry would also bring in that uh, other way of looking in which you look for when does, what triggers it? What, what's the stimulus? Where does it go? How does it last? What's it like in the body? What's it like in the mind? And so forth. And so the, the inquiry, we, you know, if I had anger, I would really try to be with it, uh, try to stay with it. You know? And there was, um, uh, I had one retreat that I did where I was angry almost the entire retreat. Particular constellation of the stars. <laughs> but for about 10 days, I had 18 hours a day of anger. 
I may not seem like an inherently angry person, but there it was, <laughs> you know, and it was very interesting. I, uh, you know, actually I was angry. It was, it was interesting. It was a time when I had just moved to California and I had been living in Kentucky and rural Ohio for seven years and kind of developing a sense of practice, really wanting to have it connected with daily life in this culture and see what it worked, see how it was working. And I went to a retreat and it wasn't particularly a different kind of retreat than I had experienced before. But for some reason, I really rebelled against it. And I said, we're not really connecting with or talking about daily life. We're treating us all, ourselves like we're all monks or nuns, but we're not. <clears throat> you know? Ten days of anger. I, you know, and who knows why, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, nothing was new, but for some reason I was really angry about that, you know. Uh, and I talked with Jack Cornfield, who was one of the teachers, and he said, well, I have some sympathy for what you're angry about, but you basically have two choices. You can either go home <laughs> or you can try to be mindful of your anger. <laughs> and I chose the second and, he, and he, he gave me some further guidance. He said, stay with your anger, really notice it, you know, really be with it um, when it comes up. Um, see what it's like in the body. Notice what's going on in the thoughts. Uh, also, um, Notice what happens when the anger leaves. Does something else arise? You know? And he also said, at the end of every sitting or walking, take some notes about what you've experienced. Take a few notes. And this is, this is a technique that comes out of the, uh, some of the Burmese traditions where people to actually take notes after sittings and walks. It's not a lot of notes. It's not, you maybe just might, like I would write a sentence or two, you know, of notes. And then what I did was, after three or four days, I looked at all my notes. And it was fascinating. And I was so, it was so interesting to look at that, that, you know, in a, in a sense I had the privilege of being angry for such a long time that it let me really uh, see it in a lot of different variations and a lot of depth. And, and we can actually do this with any difficult state. For me, it was fascinating to see the way it manifested in the body. Sometimes it would be, you know, heat and fire. Sometimes it would be, I would actually sometimes feel nausea at times. You know, also very interesting, there were all sorts of varieties of anger. I came out of that saying, hey, there's no one anger. There are a lot of kinds of anger. It was interesting, I wouldn't have said that before. You know, there's sometimes my anger is petty. You know, I'm just, I didn't get what I want, right? And uh, other times the anger would be um, just very reactive. You know, it'd be the kind of reactive aversion, just very impulsive, automatic like that. And sometimes it would be a little bit different. It would be sometimes um, when I trace the anger, it would move into, uh, when it would end, it would go into sadness. It'd be like, you know, in the context of the issue I was bringing up, it'd be like, you know, uh, 
I don't feel like my voice is uh, being heard. You know, it's, I'm sad about that. I feel, you know, I want it to be heard and so forth. And then sometimes when I stayed with the sadness, it would go into love. Like I really care about this community. So I got to see, for example, that with a lot of that anger, and this would be true, I think, of a lot of anger related to injustice, there was actually love connected with the anger, which is really interesting, right? Which is, I think, something that we, we, uh, we find in, 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 I think, especially in Western traditions. You know, like when God gets angry, there's presumably love. There's a, there was a book by um, Josh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, some of you know, who was a well-known, um, was a Jewish uh, rabbi and writer who was also an activist. He walked with Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King. He was born in Germany and escaped. And he wrote one of the best books on the Jewish prophets, because the Jewish prophets got angry all the time as well, right? <laughs> About injustice. And he had a chapter in, in there called The Mystery of God's Wrath. Very interesting, you know. So I would, I would see that the anger sometimes was connected with love when I stayed with it, which was incredibly illuminating. I didn't know that in a direct way. Just from staying in a mindful way. And then sometimes the anger was like that of an Old Testament prophet. You know, I would be there and I would shake my hand and say, you can do what you want. But unless you really see these important insights, you will bear the consequences. Mm. <laughs> you know, kind of, it was a different kind of anger. It was, it, was, it was very interesting. So I saw like five or six kinds of anger, how it manifested in the body, the, the relationship to other emotions. It's incredible. I, I, you know, I was, uh, as I said earlier, that after doing that, anger never was the same again. And you can do that when you investigate. And sometimes, you know, those of us who do retreats sometimes have retreats which are primarily flavors of one difficult emotion or another. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had fear retreats. I've had self-judgment retreats. And when you bring mindfulness to them, there can be illumination. And so that's all part of the inquiry practice. It would be the recognition, the acceptance, the inquiry really staying with uh, the experience, seeing what it's like in the body, seeing what it's like in the mind, noticing where it goes when it changes. You can do that, you can do that. And then the N in the RAIN formula is non-identification. That we, in some way, try to see these almost as naturally occurring phenomena. We're just mindful of it. We don't, uh, we don't take it personally, in a sense, which is not easy, right? that we just sort of stay there and say, oh, look at this. Look at this anger developing. Ah, oh, the anger is turning to sadness. Hmm, interesting, you know. And it's, um, the suggestion is to really stay with it and see it, you know, see it just as movements within one's experience. And then out of that, one can respond. So we can do that, we can do that in our experience, when, and this is the last thing I'll say, then we'll open it up a little bit, we can do that when there's a capability of being balanced with a difficult state. And this is a very important point that we made earlier. Sometimes when we're in very difficult states, we're lost in them, we're taken away by them. 
And then it's quite important to do that, which brings us back to balance. The mindfulness that I had with the anger, I think was possible because I was not totally lost in the anger. I could be with it. There could be maybe other forms of anger, certainly, where for a certain period of time, I'm lost in it, it's too much to be mindful of. And in those cases, we want to bring our consciousness, our minds, our attention back to balance in certain ways. And we could do this by sometimes doing loving-kindness practice. We could do meditative practices like loving-kindness. We could be more in the body. We can do something physical. We can talk to a friend. We can be in nature. Probably each of us know what to do when our minds are out of balance, right? I think most of us know some of that. We can do all those things. And so this mindfulness with difficult states really presupposes that we can be, be somewhat balanced with that, with that experience. So let me, at this point, uh, open it up to any questions or comments or sharings of experience, and we can use the, we can use the mic again. Thank you very much. Your comments about reactivity and contemporary life is, is, is puzzles me to some extent, considering that I always thought that mindfulness was somewhat more of a reflective state. Mm. And for those of us who work in um, maybe difficult environments mm-hmm. that move very rapidly, yeah. um, mindfulness sometimes can get lost in that time zone. And there's no blink time, as, as Malcolm Gladwell would well have said. There's no blink time. And I find it very difficult. I find it easy at times to have mindfulness at home. I find it yeah. easy when I'm driving or sitting here. But in, in, my, in the place where I make money, oftentimes it is, it is less easy to be mindful. Yeah. You gave us at one time several years ago how to deal with 50 difficult people or 50 ways of dealing with difficult people. That got me through a couple of years. Oh. So if you could comment on, on the reactivity and time. Um, yeah. Reactivity and time and the um, challenges when things are happening very, very quickly. And it's hard to be mindful in certain uh, settings. Yeah. And the, I think he, he, your name again? Is? Richard Arrington. Richard was referring to um, I think maybe a day long. I, uh, I've did day-longs and some talks on the theme, it was called the Dharma of Difficult People. Yes. Right? Uh, and it's been a, it's been a focus, because when we work with speech practice, for example, it's a big focus. How do you work with challenging speech situations? Mm-hmm. So it's a very important focus area. So, uh, I think maybe a few, a few things occur to me, you know, with those kind of situations. Um, we can remember that we have four foundations of mindfulness. And some of the more subtle ones may be harder. You know, it may be harder when you're fully in action to track this thought, that emotion, that thought. It's more possible to generally stay in one's body. And again, I I think that body awareness is a really crucial way to stay mindful. Because it's very easy in this culture to be, as it were, in the stream, I don't know if I'm going to mix metaphors, but in the stream of the automatic mind. 
you know, the mind, you know, or just where we're in that kind of virtual reality thinking all the time, right? And when we can be with our bodies, it breaks that monopoly. You know, it's just, just to have some body awareness means we're not totally in thinking. And so in challenging situations like that, some awareness of the body and just staying there can help one not be so locked into the thoughts. And then, then you can maybe notice things and you might be on the lookout especially for the, the bigger ones, the more reactive thoughts, the, uh, you know, and, and be able to track that. And to develop mindfulness of the body that would be able to be used in those situations is not easy. That's another, I mean, I'm not saying this is easy. Um, And I think in my experience one has to really train to develop mindfulness of the body. Some of us are probably there for different reasons. Maybe people are yoga teachers or do, you know, just are or just got brought up to be more in their bodies. But for a lot of us, it was like that story of consciousness on a pole, right? Uh, that the, how many had that training? <laughs> Some of us, you know. Probably a little bit more men, but, but not exclusively. Um, um, and so, yeah, the, the, any training that we do that helps us stay more and more in our body is valuable. And that can start with just being aware of the breath and again like for me starting mindfulness practice brought me back to my body and probably many of us have had that experience coming back to the senses so to speak and uh, and so really emphasizing that it could mean these kind of practice could mean when you're walking somewhere do walking meditation practice rather than think about whatever you're thinking about every time you're walking I, that's what I did when I was first meditating. I was a student and I didn't have a car and I walked a lot and I said, I'm going to just do walking meditation every time I'm walking around. You know, and it helped. Right? It helped in that way to do yoga, to do body practices. Um, you know, just to find different ways to come into one's body. Some of the, I, I really like qigong or yoga practices which work with pranayama because it works with the nervous system. You know, and it can make a huge difference. A lot of our uh, overactivation as thinkers reflects a certain state of the nervous system. And when we do some of the energy-based practices like in Qigong or some types of yoga that work a lot with the breath, uh, we actually shift the way the energy body is. And that can have a big impact and lessen the, the amount of thinking. For people who have overactive minds, anyone have an overactive mind? <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. I, I take the laughter means that it's more than just a few. <laughs> okay. For overactive minds, uh, body practices can be really important, and they will help. They'll help in multiple ways. So not easy. And then sometimes you could, in retreats, really focus on just the training to be in the body, and that's uh, so. It's a it's a big thing, but that plays a big role in those environments. The other thing that you can do is take a lot of breaks, as much as that's possible. Yeah, take a lot of breaks. Take a lot of bathroom breaks. It's socially awkward for people to comment about how many bathroom breaks you've taken. 
especially if you're older. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so really, it's the the principle is that of somehow coming back to being mindful multiple times during a day and finding ways to do it. You know, little all sorts of little things. Take a five-minute walk after a meal. Just be in your body. That sort of thing. A lot of things. I. Uh, the book I did out there called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I wrote, I, uh, for the original draft of that, I wrote a section called 60 Ways to Be Mindful in Daily Life. And my editor cut it. <laughs> so it was too much, too long. That section, it was a section called Mindfulness in, in Action. <laughs> she cut it. Anyway, the ideas are still good, but it's not in the book. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, please. Yeah. Um, uh, difficult states. Uh, I'm thinking of panic attacks yeah. and um, uh, going from uh, a degree of just dealing with fear to difficult uh, state of panic attacks that yeah. the intention, I think, is really important to yeah. look at the intention to be mindful in that state. And um, also the Understanding that it's going to take a lot of time yeah. if you're going to use mindfulness practice with it. Both of those ideas, depending on the difficulty of the difficult state. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I, even my example of anger points to the way that there are certain difficult states where mindfulness is not accessible. Right? <laughs> and then again, we want to do that which brings us into balance. Mindfulness, if it's accessible, is always a good place to go if it's available. But some of our states, the body might be so worked up, right, that we just really can't be mindful. And then there are all sorts of other things to do to come back to balance or to work with, to work with those states. And uh, maybe, you know, something like panic attacks, a hard one. Um, some of you may know that uh, there's a Tibetan teacher who's Pema been at Spirit Rock, Mingyur Rinpoche. Oh, Pema Chodron also managed. Pema Chodron. And they talk about, you know, Mingyur Rinpoche was brought up as a mm. Tibetan teacher, and he as a kid had panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And they were disabling, right? And he talks about it in his first book, which is in the bookstore. And it's also, I think, their YouTube videos, which he did on that. And it's very interesting, and he, they were very hard, he sometimes couldn't be mindful at all. He had to do other things. And then later, when he was on a long retreat, the panic attacks came, and for a period of time he just said, I am just going to be aware of this and be mindful. And he stayed with it. Uh, and it took, it took a while, but he worked through it, and they didn't come again mm -hmm. you know, when he was willing to be mindful with it. Yeah, so I think, I think like... Um, Degree of difficulty plays a big role, and for the most difficult, we can't necessarily be mindful. We can try, but if, we, if, if mindfulness just feels like it's not possible, then we do that which brings us back to balance. But for a lot of our difficult states, like my anger, or sometimes we can just sit with and notice certain kinds of fear where it's not totally paralyzing, but it's there, right? Or anxiety about something. We can be mindful with that and just hang out with it. Uh, in the back, please. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Thank you. I realized as I was sitting here that there are two things that I'm a little bit unclear on. You yeah. talked about um, mindfulness being you know, something that we can practice in the midst of activity. And so I realized that I might be confused or not have clarity between the different, the difference between mindfulness and meditation. Yeah. And the second thought was uh, with regards to rain, what is the difference or the distinction between non-identification and non-attachment? Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so the first question uh, is about... Um, Mindfulness, as it were, on and off the cushion, or in formal practice as well as outside of formal practice. And um, mindfulness, we would say, is a kind of meditation. There are multiple forms of meditation. Mindfulness is one form. And it really just means, as we've seen, being able to be present with what's happening in the moment and to know that it's happening and to be with it, more or less. And so we can do that on the cushion, in formal meditation, and also as we are in daily life type situations. Some situations, again, following your question, was it, was it Richard? Yeah, following Richard's question, some situations easier than others. Like I would sometimes, when I'm at meetings sometimes, uh, and I'm not in charge where I can sort of just be there watching what's happening, I'll do a mindfulness log on a sheet of paper in front of me. You know, just you know, very interesting. Just aware, present, you know, content. Then a little later, hmm, I don't like, don't like that. What we just did, <laughs> you know, and notice that, and then make a mindfulness log. Feeling restless, sarcastic thoughts developing. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, and that's just, right, that, uh, Richard said, keep mouth closed. <laughs> and so the mindfulness log uh, very much can be a support for wise action, which in that particular case, I noticed sarcastic thoughts and I didn't express them. If I hadn't noticed them, how much more likely would it have been that it would, they would have just come out, right? Probably not for good effect, since and some of what I could also see with the mindfulness, and this is really important, we want to see the relationship between our thoughts, our emotions, and our bodies. I could see restlessness, tiredness, and then how certain thoughts develop with those conditions. That's part of what we explore. We really want to keep on looking at the mind and the body and, and, and the heart and how they're, they're related. I'll come back to that in a moment. But then the second part you had was? The different in rain, the difference oh, between non identification and non attachment. Non attachment. Um, yeah, well, the words are used in different ways. Um, non identification would mean that um, I can just be with what's happening and notice it without, without uh, getting, getting upset that it's happening, without thinking, oh, this is me, or you know, uh, I'm just so angry, you know, I shouldn't have so much anger. So it's really to almost to be a, like a scientist in a way and to let it occur. Uh, I think it's similar to, uh, we could say it's similar to a kind of non-attachment in that I'm, uh, I'm willing just to be with the flow of experience and not be attached, quote-unquote, 
to this happening or that happening. In other words, I can be with it and uh, we would, one sense of non-attachment would be that it's okay in a, in a deep sense, whatever happens. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, please. Uh, yeah. Donald, any, any quick thoughts on dealing with just general depression and malaise where it gets to the point where you have a hard time you know, getting the motivation to do anything, including work at, at your practice? Yeah, so how to be with depression or malaise that feel uh, strong, even overwhelming, and that make it even hard to practice. So, so again, we're, we can see that there are almost like degrees of difficulty. And all of us can be mindful with certain kinds of difficulties that are maybe not the hardest, not 10 on a scale of 10 for us, right? Like I would say my anger when I was being with it was not 10 on a scale of 10. Maybe it was six or seven. It was not altogether pleasant at first, but I could be with it. And sometimes a panic attack might be 10, and it's hard to be with that. And certain kinds of depression might be 10. And if that's the case, then we might want to use other ways to work with it. I know there are books. I haven't read the books. There are quite a few books on mindfulness and depression, which probably have good, uh, fairly developed responses to that question. Uh, but I, I've worked with a number of people with, you know, with some kind of depression. And, um, you know, uh, mindfulness can especially play a large role with depression, her malaise, by, um, by us studying the pattern. And just a few things can be very key, even if, we're, even if, it's, uh, even if we need other tools to work with the depression as we may. But two things in particular can be really crucial. One of them is, one of them is to um, try to have awareness of what triggers. I think we want to have some sense of what triggers the difficult experience. We want to study that. And so that might help us. Let's suppose that, you know, I don't know, let's say there's a challenging relationship. And when I have this kind of discussion with my partner, I tend to get depressed, right? Because I've had it a lot. And if I know that, then I can, as, as it were, be on the lookout for that. If I, so to really study what triggers something is important. And then to watch what we call the, sometimes the storyline is really, really crucial. And again, it's one of the places where mindfulness can be incredibly beneficial, that we watch the story we tell ourselves. And stories, of course, are important, not to say we shouldn't tell stories, but in um, difficult states, particularly negative states, ones where, where there's some suffering, maybe depression, self-judgment, often, often something like anger, uh, often fear, anxiety, we are telling ourselves stories, sometimes worst-case scenarios, sometimes there's what we sometimes call catastrophic thinking, and we are uh, basically latching on to a storyline as if it's completely true. And this is a huge uh, area where mindfulness can be helpful. When I uh, work one-on-one with people, which I do a f- fair amount, 
I find that the single most common guidance that I give is watch the stories you're telling yourself. And if people can do that with mindfulness, and essentially notice when the stories are happening close to their origin, it saves a tremendous amount of suffering. And that's going to be there almost certainly with the depression, right? There's going to be some story you tell yourself that you believe is true and it just just sink in some way, right? Something like that. And so noticing those stories, which we own, you know, it's, it's not easy. You have to do that. Noticing the stories would be the fruit of continual mindfulness. It's not like you look at, okay, let me look at my depressed state. Oh, yeah, there's that story. Oh, okay, there's that trigger. Okay, did that. It more might be the fruit of looking at it 20 or 50 times before you really are clear, oh, that's the story. I think people, you probably, that's familiar, right? We know that mindfulness, I haven't said this before, mindfulness is based on repetition. It's not the quick learning school, necessarily. Can, can learn quickly. It's like my being with the anger. I notice that anger moment after moment for many days in a row, virtually all day. And it took a while to really see things. And so the mindfulness, we have to have that patience to just stay with it. Yeah. There's a mindfulness-based group for depression in San Francisco. Yeah. So the comment was there's a mindfulness-based group that works with depression in San Francisco. And again, I know there are books in the bookstore. I think there's a book called The Mindful Way Through Depression. And I think there, there may be another book or two. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of material, and again, pro- yeah, I won't go so much into it, but I know that the two things I mentioned are, are probably key. Um, so maybe one more, and then we'll then we'll go to our walking practice. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the uh, similarities and differences between the normal mind, yeah. where we do analysis of what we're thinking and feeling, yeah. and mindfulness meditation, yeah. and Sort of a, a similar question is related to what Richard said. When we're fully engaged in some kind of task, like yeah. at work or let's say writing, which is very cognitive, yeah. is it possible to be mindful while you're engaged in those activities? Yeah. yeah. So interesting. So really, generally, questions about the relation of mindfulness to thinking and the cognitive uh, aspect of our minds. Um, Generally, we, we, um, we say that mindfulness is primarily a kind of experiential exploration. We use some thought, you know, as in the labeling, for example, uh, as in the noting, oh, this is happening, as in the looking at pattern. That's a kind of analysis, right? It comes more from sustained observation. In that sense, it's maybe more analogous to scientific observation, where we just look at this, we look at this. Maybe we take some notes, but the primary activity is staying with this, as it were, the experience from the inside. What does anger feel like? I could come to some generalizations, but I was basically hanging out with anger in the body, noticing the thoughts, noticing uh, how my experience was, noticing how things changed. And I was doing some noticing of how things changed. So that we could say, could reflect a kind of analysis. And sometimes, and so I would make those notes. There's some thinking going on there. It's not a, 
process totally cut off from thinking, but it's primarily a kind of direct, it's a, we would say a more direct experience, and we use thinking to help guide that process, and to then we kind of come back and maybe we use thinking to reflect on that process, but the process itself is more about directly being with something in the present moment. And we use thought in those, those other ways. So we can come back and reflect, or I can look at my notes and, and analyze my notes and say, hmm, oh, okay, look, oh, here are six examples where anger turned into sadness. Oh, I hadn't quite seen that. Oh, very interesting, right? You know, and so that's a kind of analysis, and that's helpful. But the primary practice of mindfulness, and we, I wouldn't even call that mindfulness. I would call that reflection. And, that, and, and so the mindfulness can go hand in hand with the reflection, but the mindfulness itself, itself is more of a direct experience of the body, of feeling what's the pleasant like, what's the unpleasant like, what's that anger like in my body, what's it really like there. And so can we use mindfulness with a process like writing or when we're really engaged? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, we can certainly use mindfulness or the, the calm mind and the mind that sees clearly and notices. I think, uh, I think is a very helpful adjunct to creativity. You know, and I think that we have the creativity retreat here at Spirit Rock, and that's explored in that retreat, mostly for writers and artists. But in my own experience, as, as, you know, as a writer and uh, sometime poet, uh, and you know, being aware of a lot of, uh, you know, I have a lot of musicians in my family, uh, and you know, having spent, t- I spent some time at Naropa Institute in Colorado where I studied poetry with Allen Ginsberg and with other poets. And we did a lot of writing, you know, and we were really looking at these questions of mindfulness and creativity. And there's a way that the, the mindfulness, uh, like when I was writing that, that book uh, that's out on the table, uh, I would often meditate and be really mindful and really be open. And then in that way of being, I would sometimes then start writing. And the writing would be uh, less blocked and more fluid. I also would sometimes do mindfulness practice and then turn my attention to the themes that I was writing about. And there would often be a lot of creativity. Because some um, some of what we do with mindfulness practice is we have the mind be quiet enough so that we can actually see what's happening. And part of you know, some of what we mean by insight, in terms of insight practice, is to see patterns and to see what's there, you know. Uh, maybe, do you have one more comment on this? And then, then we'll, I think we'll have to go to walking. So we have the mic. Can we bring the mic to the... Yeah, to... But it's a really interesting area. That's really, I'm, that's only like a partial answer. I think we probably can sometimes be mindful in the moment when we're letting creative energies come through us. You know, maybe, I don't know about the, the act of writing itself. You could, sometimes I write and I feel my body as I write. You know, can, in other words, stay in the present moment. Yeah, please. Hello. I had a similar question as yeah. um, that person there, lady there. Um, 
I've heard other speakers, um, mostly Vedantic speakers yeah. um, in India, yeah. and they talk about science as being objective, where there's an observer, there's the thing that's being observed, and then there's the act of observing. Mm-hmm. So there's three things. Yeah. Um, mindfulness, or what they call, um, you know, techniques in meditation in in that practice, yeah. um, talk about dropping the observer and the thing that is observed, yeah. and just being in the observing. Yeah. Is that what mindfulness is, where yeah. the self is gone, the ego is dropped, the object is dropped, you just are aware of the experience that observe, you know, that you're walking or writing, yeah. writing, writing, yeah. Uh, anger, yeah. angry. Yeah. Right. So it's a great question, you know, like, where is the self in mindfulness? Or who is being mindful? Or when you were saying, you just are aware, who, who's the you? <laughs> right? So, um, this is a good question for right before walking meditation. Because <laughs> uh, it can activate our minds a little bit, right? So it's, um, it's a complex question. And um, so quite a few dimensions of it. And we'll segue into some of what we'll look at next segment will be related to that. Because it's, re- it's um, so a few things. First of all, we... Um, we try to just see what's there. And as in the question of, uh, about non-attachment and non-identification, when we are just with experience, in a sense, we ask ourselves to get out of the way, just in the way a scientist would uh, let go of personal preferences about how if the person is watching baboons in the wild, would let, a, let go of personal preferences about what he or she thinks baboons should do, right? You just observe the baboons. I don't know where that example came from. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and so, but, or we could say we just, uh, we just observe the way the uh, chemical reaction occurs and we let go of my personal preferences for I'm a real, you know, I really wanted this to happen. We just look at what's happening. That's mindfulness. And so there's a certain kind of letting go of preferences, of self, or when we, when we look at self-judgment, we just, okay, there's self-judgment. And we let go of the wanting it to be there or not. And that's, that's a partial letting go of self. And just the, just the observing, just the being with, being with it. And it's a, it's a good question also to ask, who is observing? You know, because as meditators, this is getting a little more subtle, but as meditators, we can have a sense, a thicker sense of self be more or less present when we're meditating. Mm-hmm. You know, we can be sitting there and saying, this should happen. Well, that should happen. This should occur. Oh, hey, that occurred. That shouldn't be occurring. Am I making progress? This is good. Should I meditate? Maybe Sufi dancing. <laughs> you know? And in that experience of meditation, there's quite a bit of self, right? And so we can look to see how much sense of self there is versus just, as it were, giving ourselves up to the process. So that's one perspective. 
And a little more subtle perspective, we could also say that the um, um, yeah, I'll back up. Part of what we do is we look at experience and we do so increasingly without a strong sense of self. And then we also can notice, and this is probably, I think fits under the third foundation of mindfulness, haven't mentioned it yet, we can also watch when a sense of self arises in experience. That's a big part, I think, of the third foundation, not mentioned explicitly in the text, but part of it would be, okay, where is my liking or disliking really getting into my meditation? Where am I, uh, uh, where am I really, or taking some experience and saying, hey, look what happened. I'm a cool meditator, right? <laughs> Watching when self appears, in other words. So that's another thing we can do. Ultimately, there is a way that um, even mindfulness, as it's defined in this text, depends on the distinction between consciousness and object. The object would be the breath, or could be the pleasant or unpleasant. And there is a duality there. There's an observer and an observed. And the observer may be not very much filled with self, but there's still some distinction. And in many, in in other texts, and in uh, different traditions, including Vedanta, uh, as well as many Buddhist traditions, there's a sense that there, that mindfulness can open up from its uh, dualistic perspective of knower and known, consciousness and object can open up to a way of being in which there's just awareness without a distinction between knower and known. So in, in Indian traditions, that's often called a non-dual state, right? Which, and it's also talked about that way in Buddhist traditions and in many Western traditions as well. So um, mindfulness, when it's mature, can open up to that kind of experience. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. Um, walking period. Let me see. Let me give you some further uh, guidance on this. Because um, I wanted to bring in a practice that you can do um, in terms of a difficult state. So let me first do it very briefly as a sitting meditation practice just for a few minutes. <clears throat> and then uh, in the walking meditation, and of course if you want to stay in here some you can do that, in the walking meditation you could do some walking, maybe five minutes of walking, and then do this exercise while you're standing outside for a few minutes. Okay, and so this is a practice, it's one kind of practice which can supplement the mindfulness of difficult states as they are occurring. It's possible, and sometimes can be valuable, to deliberately bring up a difficult state. We don't usually do this in practice, we figure we have enough difficulties as it is. But it's possible, and, I, and when we're doing this, I wouldn't go on a scale of 10 for level 10, okay? Start with maybe four or five, but maybe what you can do here, but this is a way of actually exploring a difficult state in the present moment by bringing something from the past up in awareness. So let's say that I had a difficult interaction at work where I had some anger 
in this interaction. And it wasn't, it was uh, maybe four or five or six on a scale of ten, not, not ten. And what I can do is I can bring, I'll bring to mind that experience. I'll remember, okay, there was the situation, that was the room. I can imagine myself in the room, here's what the room looked like. And I bring that experience to mind and relive the experience or maybe relive what it felt like afterwards. And I just do that for maybe, just bring it to mind. And then when it's there, I study it. Okay, what's this like in the body? Okay, I'm noticing I'm feeling some heat. My my nervous system is getting a little bit tense. My hands are getting a little bit, are clenching a little bit. So we want to notice all these things. My thoughts are turning to blaming. Okay, I'm blaming the other person. And then I say, oh, I should have said this. I'm reliving it. And there's a lot of thought, blaming. The body's doing certain things. And I just stay with that. And it's very helpful in doing something like this to uh, do something which I think I have in one of the practices on the handout, which is to continually change the channel. It's a very interesting practice, which you could do in your meditations as well. But you bring that to mind, and let's say my experience was primarily at first playing out on the level of images and thoughts, and then I, tune, then I change the channel and tune into the body. Oh, what's happening in the body? Oh, it's kind of my hands are getting a little tense. I can feel heat. I can feel some tension in my body. Let me just stay there for a minute or two. Okay, let me change the channel to the level of my heart. Oh, there's anger, but there's, I'm also sad. There's some sadness there. Okay, let me stay with that for a while. Then let me change the channel to the thoughts. Okay, back to the thoughts. Yeah, why did he do that? And then I'm, I'm off like that for a while. So let's, um, instructions clear enough? Okay, let's just try this for a few minutes right now. So again, bring to mind something that hopefully is recent in the middle of the degree of difficulty scale, four or five, maybe, maybe six. Bring it to mind, let it be there for a while, and then when it's there and sort of happening, then you can uh, do the change the channels uh, exercise.
So that's a short practice that one could do at the end of a sitting. And it, it can, in a sense, give some training in a safe space of your meditation that lets you be more likely to be able to do it in the uh, real life experience or, or in your meditation. And so the invitation now is we'll do walking meditation. We'll come back about uh, a little less than 25 minutes, about um, by this clock, about uh, 3.50. And um, during the walking meditation, maybe do some walking, and maybe twice during that period of time, if you want to stop, you could sit down somewhere and do that. Do what we just did, maybe twice for four or five minutes at a time. And again, if anyone wants to stay in here, that that's fine as well. And then the um, we'll come back for the last segment, which will be particularly on further applications to daily life, and time for. Um, some integrative suggestions and, and time for uh, discussion. And uh, also we'll connect the mindfulness practice to other ways of practicing. Yeah. Okay. Thanks.